All right, open up your Bibles to um, Acts 15. Acts 15. Um, I'm, I'm going to put myself uh, to the test this morning and try to go all the way from Acts 15 to Acts chapter 19. So we're going to try to move through Acts. My goal is to be done with Acts by the end of the summer, so when the 7th graders join us, we are uh, ready to go and we're going to start some, somewhere else. We're going to just do this in a, in a really simple format this morning. We're going to just kind of overview Paul's second missionary journey. Now, um, Luke doesn't actually organize Paul's missionary journeys based on 1, 2, and 3. It's kind of hard to see, honestly, where missionary journey 2 separates from missionary journey 1. The key is, whenever... Paul goes back to Antioch, something new is starting. So that, that's kind of what happens really quickly at the end of second missionary journey, the second missionary journey. But we're just going to try to cover the, the second total missionary journey today, and it'll take us right up to about chapter 19. And then next week we'll do the third, and then after that, Paul returns to Jerusalem, and then after that, he gets shipwrecked. So there you go, four, four messages, and we're done. Um, so, But for today, let's begin in Acts 15. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this morning that we get to um, look into your word and, and learn of you and of your great, your great providence that even is sometimes mysterious to us, but is always working toward your ends. And we also uh, look into your word to, to see the riches of it itself. I pray that you would show us wonderful things about the power of your word to save of sinners. And we pray all this in um, Jesus' name. Amen. So here's kind of the basic, the basic way we're going to unpack this message. So number one, we're just going to do a brief overview of the missionary journey of Paul, the second one. And then I'm going to give you some theological, like, high points, um, kind of just uh, some, some directions for how all of this applies to your life. And then if we have time, I want you guys to ask me some questions, and I'll tell you no lies. So as you're listening to this, think about some questions you may have about uh, maybe the Apostle Paul or this missionary journey. A lot of crazy things happen on this journey, and if you have any interesting questions. I'll try to cover that. And and in that way, hopefully we can kind of get our arms around this pretty large and pretty important um, piece of Acts. Um, But first off, let's start off with a little basic orientation on the second missionary journey itself. It comes right after uh, the Jerusalem Council. If you are in Acts 15, you'll you'll see this on the the heading of this whole chapter, the Jerusalem Council. This this council happened in 84. 49. It was the first kind of whole church council. There would be a lot that would happen after this um, in the history of the church, but this is the first one, and it's a very significant one. It has to do with uh, the content of the gospel. What, are, what, what is the gospel message that people have to believe in order to be saved? Is, is it a message like uh, some Jewish proponents were saying uh, that it's something like this? Hey, you have to believe in Jesus plus... You have to have a few good works, and then then you can truly be saved. But but notice how they conclude, particularly particularly how they conclude there in verses ten and eleven of chapter fifteen. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers 
nor we have been able to bear. Now that's a that's a Jewish that's a Jewish voice speaking there. We we haven't even been able to bear this yoke of keeping the law. We haven't been able to even do it. If you ever have read through the Sermon on the Mount, you see that the the law the law is actually quite difficult to keep, and your righteousness has to exceed that of the the people that were the best of the best at keeping the law, or so they thought. But let's keep reading here. Verse 11 as well. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The, The basic conclusion of the Jerusalem Council is, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to become a Jew. You need to have faith in Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ can you find forgiveness, freedom, uh, a righteousness not your own, as Paul would say. This is a very important counsel because this was going to shape the message that the church brings to the world from here on out. And, and this is the, the beginning point of the second missionary journal, journey. It starts right after this, this church council, right there in verse 36, actually. You'll also see that right at the beginning of this second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, who were the, the team that went on the first missionary journey, they split up over an argument that they have over John Mark. And if you remember from, from earlier, John Mark left them. He returned when the going maybe perhaps got a little bit tough. And now Barnabas, who is John Mark's uncle, wants to take John Mark on this second missionary journey, and Paul does not want to. And another thing you should know, just to kind of overview the whole of the second missionary journey, kind of starting off points here, uh, Paul, instead of Barnabas, takes a man named Silas with him. Silas is one of the men that uh, came with Paul and Barnabas after the Jerusalem council, and he came up to Antioch with the letter from the council, um, which was basically saying, hey, don't let these uh, Judaizers um, confuse you about the necessity of circumcision. Silas is one of the men that came with them to deliver this message and he could kind of authenticate it, right? So it's, it's one thing if, if Paul comes back from the council all by himself and says, listen, I was just there and we decided that, uh, that the Gentiles don't need to have circumcision to be saved. People are like, well, that's what you were saying before you left, Paul. But, so it's very important that Paul brings somebody from the council with to affirm the message as well as read the letter. And that's who Silas is, as long, uh, along with a few other guys. And now we see that Paul and S- Silas are heading out on the journey that will become Paul's second missionary journey. And, and the, the, the way this journey starts, it, it really has a few purposes. Number one, it's, it's really originally meant to retrace the steps of Paul's original missionary journey. So if you remember from those maps that we had way back when, when we had a when it had a TV with a slideshow capability. Uh, you know, in uh, south, uh, southeastern Turkey, modern-day Turkey, is where Paul kind of was on his first missionary journey. He was in uh, the provinces of southern Galatia, um, um, establishing the churches that were eventually written to him, uh, writ, uh, that he wrote to in the letter to the Galatians. He, he essentially here is now retracing his steps from his first missionary journey with Silas. Uh, Barnabas, of course, takes John Mark and they go to um, their home uh, island of 
Cyprus, well, Paul and Silas go uh, kind of retracing their original steps. They also go on this missionary journey, not just to retrace their first steps, but also to deliver the message, to deliver this letter that they got from the Jerusalem Council. So it's very important that they they go back through all of these churches they have just um, ministered in and, and report the conclusion of the council. And if you read the letter to the Galatians, you see why this was so vitally necessary. And they also, of course, retrace these steps and they strengthen the churches. As you see in 16 verse 5, the churches were strengthened in faith and they increased in numbers daily. So there's the the three kind of purposes, right? We're, We're retracing to deliver this letter to strengthen the brothers. And at the end of this strengthening period, there is this place in your Bibles, uh, chapter 16, 6, all the way through 10, is referred to as the Macedonian call. Uh, the second missionary journey of Paul really takes off when he crosses over from modern-day Turkey into uh, modern-day Greece, or what it was known as then Macedonia and Achaia and Greece. And this, of course, happened through providential guidance. Um, The Spirit of Jesus um, did not allow Paul, as it says in verse 6, to speak the word in Asia. That, of course, would be where Ephesus was, where Bithynia was. Uh, You see, Paul is, is not allowed to speak here in Asia for some strange reason. And so, with limited options, he is wondering where he's supposed to go now that he's at the end of his journey. And then then this vision, this man from Macedonia appears to him in a vision saying, in verse 9, come over to Macedonia and help us. And then, of course, in verse 10, Paul sees this vision and immediately begins to uh, pursue going to the region of Macedonia. Now, this is significant to us because this is, this is uh, Paul moving into modern-day Europe. This is transform, transformative to, to our life. This is kind of where we get our, our history from a little bit, from this strange providence of Christ. And, of course, this leads Paul to travel through all of these big cities in Macedonia and preach the gospel to them. Now, now before we kind of get into like the, the stop-by-stop locations of his second missionary journey, let me just kind of overview it, that this whole journey of Paul and his second missionary journey probably took a total of 131 days of walking. When was the last time you walked for 131 days? That's a very long period of time. He, he walked for many, many miles. Some of it was boat. But most of it was walking alone. This, was, this took a large portion of at least a year. And that's not including how long he would stop in every single city. So this was a, a massive missionary journey that took quite a bit of time, especially considering how travel was conducted, i.e. walking, in those days. So let's move now to um, kind of just doing kind of an overview of the second missionary journey Uh, by kind of like a stop-by-stop look at the second missionary journey of Paul. Now, I want you to to kind of follow me by tracking with me from city to city um, based on some nicknames that we're going to give these cities. So these nicknames, I've given them to kind of show their significance um, in, in 
in the New Testament world, maybe, and also what Paul did there and the, the response of the gospel even in those cities. So let's give a few nicknames to all of these cities where Paul stopped on the second missionary journey. The, the first city we would like to call the city of the unexpected joy. And of course, this is referring to Philippi, the city of the unexpected joy. I've already talked about this city a lot. I think Acts 16 is one of my favorite chapters in all of Acts. Um, and, and this is uh, a massive portion of Paul's second missionary journey actually occurs in Philippi for, for reasons that I'll try to explain a little bit later. Um, this, is, this is pretty deep into Paul's travel already. If you count up all of the miles that Paul has walked already from Jerusalem to this point, he's traveled 1,429 miles by foot. That's about 100 days. Um, that's a lot of walking. Um, this is also a city that saw extraordinary power from Paul through the power of Jesus. Uh, Paul, of course, cast out a demon from this girl who was enslaved to her masters who were using her to tell fortunes. And they were apparently getting really uh, rich off of her because as soon as Paul cast out the demon from her, the, the owners instantly got angry at Paul and threw him into prison for disturbing the peace. What else? Breaking rules and disturbing peace. And then, well, Paul and Silas are in this jail. It's a very, very well-known story, but I love it. Verse 25 says, At midnight they were singing and, and praising God. Even though they had been beaten and mistreated, they were praising God. And suddenly, suddenly a massive earthquake breaks out, and all the jail cells open up. And we get this impression that the prisoners could have all escaped and run free. But instead of escaping, they all stay near Paul and Silas. And soon the jailer rushes in. And he is a, a Roman jailer, and as we know, if, if a Roman soldier loses his prisoners, he suffers the fate that they would have suffered. So he thinks they're all gone, he's about to kill himself. Paul says, don't kill yourself, we are all here. And then of course he says in verse 31, or sorry, verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then of course this leads to an amazing uh, proclamation of the gospel. Three individuals are highlighted in the city of Philippi. We have Lydia, um, a businesswoman who sold purple and received the gospel. We have probably this slave girl who also was saved that day. And then, of course, the Philippian jailer as well. But why do I call this city the city of the unexpected joy? Now, there's a reason for this. First off, the, the founding of the city is 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 full of joy in God, not joy in circumstances. It's an unexpected joy because you wouldn't expect Paul to be praising God in the middle of the night in a prison cell while they're in stocks. But here he finds reasons to have joy in God above his circumstances. So, first off, the reason why this is an unexpected joy because it's a place where you would not expect someone to have joy. But when you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have joy in all circumstances, even unexpected ones. But there's another reason why I call this city the city of the unexpected joy. Uh, they, they would, the church would itself, prove to be a source of surprising joy to Paul throughout his ministry. They were a continual source of joy. If you read the letter to the Philippians, you see that Paul takes great joy in them. As a matter of fact, 
in uh, Philippians, in Philippians verse uh, chapter four, in Philippians chapter four, verse fifteen and sixteen, we see also that they were the only church that truly supplied Paul with provisions all throughout his life, not only while he was in jail in Rome, but also when he left them and went down, as we will see, to Athens and Corinth, they were still supplying Paul's need. They were a continual source of joy and encouragement to the Apostle Paul. And it's a very surprising joy because... Paul was so mistreated there, but yet he found so much joy in the church. That is the city of the unexpected joy. Let's move to the next city. We'll call this city the city of the proven elect. This is, of course, the city city of Thessalonica. It's uh, also a city that received uh, a letter from Paul that we find in the New Testament. It's another leading Macedonian city in that in that time. It's about a hundred miles from Philippi. It's about a week of travel on a major road through Macedonia. Uh, Paul was here for a short time. It says in Acts 17 that he was here for three Sabbaths. That's three weeks. And he probably was there for a little bit longer than that. Uh, But he at least started his ministry in Thessalonica for three weeks, teaching in the synagogue and, and reasoning with the Jews. And notice Paul's, Paul's ministry always has the same order. He reaches first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, this is what happens. After about three weeks, uh, the, the fruit of his ministry becomes apparent. And that fruit is not from Jewish converts, but, but mainly Gentile converts. They are the ones most excited about the gospel. And this causes the Jews, of course, like we've seen, to get very jealous in verse 5 of chapter 17. The Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. The, the, the city of Thessalonica had to suffer immediately because they were, uh, the, the, sorry, the church in Thessalonica had to suffer immediately for believing in Christ. And they also had to suffer immediately for being associated with Paul. But what we see in them is they went to great lengths to protect Paul, and to, to believe the Word of God. And, and why do we call this the city of the proven elect? I get this title from the letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Thessalon- uh, Thessalonica was, of course, a rough city for Paul to minister in, but, but the fruit that he produced there was so genuine and proven through the, the persecution that they immediately encountered. Paul says this to the Thessalonians in, in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2, we, thank, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfast of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Uh, You know, essentially... You know God has truly called you when you hold fast to the word, regardless of what happens in your life. 
or to tie the two churches together so far, when you have joy in God, regardless of your circumstances, when, when your joy is rooted to the truth of God and the character of God and not the truth of your circumstances. That is, that is the, the church in Thessalonica. They had joy in God and they were proven. Their, their election, their calling by God was proven by how they endured suffering. Jump back to 17. Obviously, Paul and, Paul and company is quickly kicked out of Thessalonica as well, and they move down the road, about 46 miles down the road, three days' journey. They move to a city called Berea, and we'll call this city the city of the noble examples. And we get this from verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So here we have the noble examples, right? They, they hear the word of God preached and they examine the scriptures for themselves to see if these things are so. Um, but this doesn't last for very long because the Jews in Thessalonica are aggressively evangelistic in their own way. Uh, they follow Paul the whole 46 miles and stir up the Jews against Paul. And soon Paul has to flee for his life from Berea. And that's, that's all we know of the city of the noble examples. They are a good example to us to examine the truth of God in his word. But this leads us to our fourth city, the fourth city. This is called Athens, the city of the sophisticated... Are you ready for this? Meh. I'll tell you. So, uh, Paul uh, leaves Berea... It seems as though the Berean Christians actually escort him out and bring him to a boat that brings him down to Athens a little bit further. Athens, of course, is the, the center of the sophisticated world. It's the center of wisdom and philosophy. We, to this day, think of Athens often in terms of the great philosophers that come from there, Plato, and so on and so forth. Paul meets some of these philosophers in Athens. Um, you see their names there, verse 18. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Matter of fact, they were confused by what he was teaching. He was, of course, teaching these things because he was provoked by how many idols were in the city, and he began to teach them about the truth of Jesus and his resurrection. And they perhaps think he is teaching of two new gods, Jesus and this other god called resurrection. Um, Perhaps that's what they are confused by in verse 18. Uh, But the reason I call this the sophisticated meh is their response to Paul. He gives this sermon where basically he says, there is a God, you know of him through creation, and he has revealed himself, and he is going to come and judge. That's that's basically Paul's message. There's a God, and he's coming, and he's going to judge. And you know it's true. But after Paul gives this message, there's this meh response. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Now, a little bit of background there. The, the Greeks had this, what we would call, platonic view of life. They, they had this idea of, hey, this physical life is bad. 
Spiritual life is all that, that there is spiritually. We, we hope to someday be removed from this body and go on to this wonderful existence of our, our, our spiritual existence in the clouds where we are removed from this body. So think about that. Here comes Paul talking about a resurrection of the dead where you get a, a new body. That sounds absolutely outrageous to the philosophy of his day. So verse 32, uh, some mocked him, but others said, hey, this is interesting though. We will hear you again uh, more, uh, sorry, we will hear you again about this. But then notice what Paul does. He doesn't stick around for weeks. He leaves in verse 33. So Paul went out from their midst. Some men joined him and believed. And you see a list of about three or four. But then it seems as though Paul leaves pretty quickly, right? as it says in 18.1, right? After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. I, I, I would describe their reaction to Paul a little bit as indifference. And, and you see this from, from a number of reasons, right? There's only a few converts. Paul doesn't stay very long here. But also, I would also suggest to you the indifference is also seen in the fact that this is one of the few cities that Paul ever visits where there's absolutely no persecution. They're so used to religion, this is nothing new, and they're indifferent to it. They have so much religion in their life that they are not provoked at all by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the city of the sophisticated man. And this leads us to our last major city, the city of Corinth, chapter 18. And chapter 18 kind of brings us to the end of Paul's second missionary journey in Corinth. This is 53 miles down from Athens. It's, of course, across that famous uh, Greek isthmus that is connecting the two halves of Greece. Uh, This city was very wealthy. It was known as the marketplace of Greece. It was a very profitable place for businessmen. And, of course, Paul actually starts working his tentmaker trade here in Corinth. It's also here where he meets Aquila and Priscilla, and they work together. They're all tentmakers. And Paul stays here for an incredible amount of time, considering how long he stayed anywhere. He stays here for a year and a half, it tells us, in 1811. This is probably the longest stop Paul's had in his life since he was originally back in the church in Antioch back in chapter 11. And it seems as though he initially splits his time. It seems he's here because he's out of money. He, he splits his time and he works, he works his tent maker trade part time. And then he, he, he also, when he has free time, occupies himself in the word. At least until verse 5 happens when Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia. Then Paul is able to go full-time with the Word. Now, ESV says, it seems to suggest that Paul was occupied the whole time in verse 5, but I would actually say maybe LSB is a little bit better there in verse 5. It says, when Timothy and Silas came down from Macedonia, Paul began to devote himself full-time. So the picture is, he's in Corinth, he doesn't have enough money, so he has to work for a while. But then, when Silas and Timothy come from the churches in Macedonia they allow him to then begin to work full-time with the Word of God. 
And that just shows you the, the power of supporting missionaries, right? You can enable them to spend a lot more time doing what they are called to do. Matter of fact, if we read the New Testament letters, we actually see that those churches in Macedonia perhaps are just one church in Macedonia. And that is, of course, the church from Philippi. They were the ones that were constantly supporting Paul and the only ones, as Paul would say in Philippians 4, 15 and 16, the only ones to support him during this time. But let's get back to the city. The city itself is nicknamed the city of God's foolish wisdom. God's foolish wisdom. Why? Why would we name it this way? Well, to be honest, part of it is from the letters themselves, the, the Corinthians, not surprisingly, because they live so close to Athens, were very consumed with the idea of wisdom and seeking spiritual wisdom. And, and when Paul came, he said he preached nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ, which is foolishness to Jew and Greek alike. But even though it's a folly to those who are perishing, to those who are being saved, the cross of Jesus Christ is the power of God to salvation. So we have here the city of God's foolish wisdom. And we also have other evidences of this as well. While Paul is in Corinth, he uh, encounters significant rejection from his own people, the Jews, and the, the Gentiles also receive him with joy, but also there's this trouble in the church of whose wisdom will they follow, the world's wisdom or God's wisdom. And there's a lot of harsh and difficult times that Paul encounters. But notice, notice when, when Paul is going through these hard times in Corinth, verse 9 of chapter 18, the Lord appears to Paul one night in a vision and says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And then, of course, Paul goes on to stay there for a very long period of time, one year and six months. One year and six months. Once again, persecution, trouble, difficulty leads Paul to stay in a place for longer. And lack of persecution actually leads him to leave. It's very curious. But this shows how the wisdom of God is often upside down to the world's standards of wisdom. And the gospel is the same way. It is the wisdom of God, even though it seems foolishness. But it's God's wisdom. And this is the city of Corinth. And of course, this leads us to the conclusion that after a period of time, um, some of the Jews in the city uh, launched this united attack against Paul in verse 12. Um, they bring Paul before the tribunal, uh, Gallio, uh, and they try to prove that he is a disturber of the peace, one of their favorite accusations. Uh, Gallio doesn't fall for it. He says, this seems to be just a mere question about words and names and your law. See to it yourself. This, of course, uh, shows the Jews that they are not going to get a hearing from this tribunal. And then there's, there's, some, there's some question marks about what happens next, but it appears that after this, um, a bunch of Gentiles in verse 17 sees 
Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, and Gallio pays no attention to any of them. So what happens? The Gentiles, who are already irritated at the Jews, when the Jews don't get away with their uh, don't uh, when Gallio doesn't let them get away with their effort to destroy Paul, the Gentiles take this moment to beat up on some of the Jews in the synagogue. And of course, this probably doesn't make Paul any more popular with the Jews. And then after this, after a period of time, verse 18 says, Paul stayed there many days longer and then took his leave of them and then sailed his way back to Jerusalem and eventually Antioch. And this is the end of the second missionary journey. There's, there's a lot of significant things to pull out here, but the thing that Luke really wants to drive home is way over in chapter 19, verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That is the theme of the second missionary journey of Paul. The word of God is prevailing and increasing mightily. And, and sometimes it doesn't seem like that's what's happening, but that is what is happening in the second missionary journey of Paul. This leads us to the question, the second part, the second question I have is just what are some theological highlights? What are some applicational ruts that I want you guys to find yourself when you're reading through Acts 15 through 19? Here's, here's just some, some, some titles, some titles you could say and put over these applicational and theological highlights. The first thing I would want you to see in this second missionary journey of Paul is the wonderful trouble of God's providence. The wonderful trouble of God's providence. The second missionary journey of Paul begins with a lot of bumps. We have Barnabas and Paul split. We have Paul restricted and unable to minister in Asia. And it seems as though there's lots of trouble. But as you keep reading through the, the account of Paul's missionary journeys, you see that these troubles are actually positioning Paul to be in a very strategic and fruitful place. And that's the way we can always look at our troubles and our problems if we are seeking to honor the Lord first and foremost in our life. They're just, they're just mysterious they're wonderful troubles of God's providence. God is working all things to maximize his glory through us. That, that is the first thing we see. Matter of fact, I would really like you to know that hindrances, difficulties, actually can at times lead to greater fruitfulness in your life in the future if you respond to them with faith and courage and obedience they are only wonderful trouble from a providential and powerful God. Let's look at a, another highlight we could make from this missionary journey. I title this highlight, The Christian's Guide for When to Graciously Give Up. The Christian's Guide for When to Graciously Give Up. Now this is one of my big questions from my reading of Acts. You'll remember that Acts 15 was a massive chapter on the truth of the gospel, right? The, the gospel is faith in Christ Jesus alone by faith alone, right? You don't add to this gospel. This was absolutely important for Paul to, to emphasize this. As a matter of fact, if you read in the, the letter to the Galatians, Paul says he doesn't let anything come between him and the truth of the gospel. He stands against... Uh, so-called believers. 
He stands even against friends like Peter and Barnabas in, in Galatians 2, verse 11, all the way down through 14. We see Paul opposing Peter to his face. And we also see in Galatians 2 that, that, that when Paul was on one of his missionary journeys, even, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So, so Paul stood firm on his, in, his, in his tracks, so to speak, right? He had a, a man with him named Titus who was a Greek and who some of these uh, Judaizers were trying to pressure Paul into circumcising, and Paul did not give them an inch. He said, no, the truth of the gospel is not by circumcision, but by faith in Christ Jesus alone. And Paul holds firm. He is a pillar. He is a pillar for truth. And this is where it gets very curious, because in Acts 16, verse 3, we read this. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Of course, this is when Paul and Silas are are beginning the second missionary journey. And they meet Timothy, someone who we will see again later in the story. Paul wants Timothy to accompany him, and he takes him and circumcises him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And, of course, we need some history there. Paul's mother was Jewish, and, or me, Timothy's mother was Jewish, and Timothy's father was Greek. So he kind of fit in nowhere, right? To the Jews, he was a Greek. To the Greek, he was a Jew. He was nobody to everybody, right? Nobody knew who Timothy was. Paul, what, what is going on here? This same Paul that went all the way down to Jerusalem to have this council to argue about whether circumcision was a thing, circumcises Timothy right out of the gates. And notice, not only that, verse 4, he's circumcising Timothy while he is delivering the letter from the Jerusalem church about how Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. So, so what is it, Paul? Are you going to circumcise or not circumcise? What is going on? And I would argue to you that Paul actually shows you wisdom here, and he gives you a Christian's guide for when to give up. I would submit to you that the reason why Paul circumcises Timothy is because the gospel wasn't at stake, right? They had the, they had the truth of the gospel set in stone. And now Paul says, in order to not be an offense to the Jews that we're going to try to reach, the truth of the gospel is, 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 is cemented by this council and by the teaching that came from it. But in order not to be an offense, we can graciously give up a little bit of our freedoms in order not to offend someone. Now, once again, notice, Paul is a pillar when it comes to truth. But he is a reed when it comes to non-essentials. Paul is willing to let things go when the truth of the gospel is not at stake. And I think the principle here is also found in Romans 14, verse 19. So then, let us pursue love and what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That only can be the rule of the Christian when truth is not at stake. And that's what Paul kind of models for us in chapter 16. Timothy was a Jew. He could be circumcised, but the truth of the gospel wasn't dependent on his circumcision. There was no pressure for Timothy to get circumcised, and that's why Paul did this to show love towards his Jewish friends so 
that they wouldn't be unnecessarily offended. There's another theological truth I want you guys to understand from the second missionary journey. How about this? It's, it's concerning the way to witness to a worldless world. The way to witness to a wordless world. Sorry, not wordless world. That doesn't make any sense. A wordless world. And this goes over to Acts 17 and that, that amazing speech that Paul gives to, uh, uh, to the philosophers in Athens. Many people love this chapter. They think it's an argument for their kind of way of doing apologetics, which is basically just a lot of arguments for the existence of God. Look at all the arguments for the existence of God that Paul gives. And some people would say, look at how Paul is contextualizing the gospel. He doesn't lead them through a Bible study. Matter of fact, he argues from their own philosophers in verse 28. So here we go, right? When, when you're in a culture that doesn't have the Bible, just throw out the Bible. You don't need the Bible. Just argue for the existence of God and use their own poets, and bam, you'll win them to faith. Now, I would suggest to you that that is a little bit superficial of a reading. Paul is indeed a model here, but maybe not perhaps as some people think he is. His focus in this whole entire encounter with these philosophers on Mars Hill is to convince them of the power and the person of God. That's number one. He, he seeks to convince them of that. He says, the God, but, but, but notice, he says this, uh, verse 23, I'll, I'll just read it to you. For as I passed along, Paul said, and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all mankind. Paul, Paul basically is beginning his argument by, by saying, this God exists, and you know he exists because of creation around you. Yes, he refers to some arguments from uh, from the cause of all this creation that they see. But notice also, he's, he's not just making arguments. He's making arguments that are formed from his understanding of the world from Scripture, right? He is proclaiming a known God. He is proclaiming revelation about this God who created the world. He is saying not just that God exists, but that God has also spoken. Matter of fact, he says, this God has spoken in such a way that he now demands that you repent based on his son, Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, and Paul also, he doesn't ignore any of the hard parts of the gospel to communicate the gospel, right? He talks about resurrection. And the only thing I want to really point out to you here is a way to witness to a wordless world is simply this. Yes, arguments can be helpful, but ultimately, you can't live in a fantasy world in which God has not spoken. Paul assumes a lot of truth from Scripture that he uses to argue to these Athenians. Matter of fact, if you read verses 24 and all the way down through verses 27 and just look up all of these cross-references, you'll quickly notice Paul is informed by Scripture all throughout his account here. So, the way to witness to a wordless world, yes, is arguing for the existence of God. But this is, of course, an argument that comes from the Word of God. It's an argument that assumes truth. It assumes that this God has 
written to us and spoken to us. And let's kind of follow that truth with another theological highlight. We'll call this highlight the amazing effectiveness of God's Word. The amazing effectiveness of God's Word. God's Word will always do what it is meant to do. Matter of fact, God's Word, we believe from Romans 1, has, has, has a grip on man's conscience. God's existence has a grip on man's conscience. And God's word, as it says in Isaiah 55, 11, shall not return to him empty. And I want you just to see, in closing, the effectiveness and sharpness of God's word to save. And why Paul relies on it, even in Athens. And to, to see this, I want you to turn back to Acts 16 really quick. And here we have this... This picture of salvation that Luke gives us from Acts 16. I find a lot of things very interesting about Acts 16. Uh, Number one, how in the world could Paul and Silas sing praises to God at midnight in a jail cell? Number two, why did the other prisoners not run away? Uh, Number three, why did the jailer know? about the message that Paul presented. Why did he ask, what must I do to be saved? Why did he know this? Well, I would suggest there are some reasons for this. And and the main reason, though, is that the Word of God is effective and sharp and powerful. Number one, why did the prisoners not leave? Well, it says, interestingly enough, in verse 25, the prisoners were listening to Paul and Barnabas singing. They knew that they had a hope in God among them that was more secure than their hopes, maybe in their gods. And that's why they stayed. They were struck by a God who was so great and powerful that he could be worshipped while in chains and break out those people in a minute. And notice also, why does the, why does the jailer ask this question, what must I do to be saved? How did he know that they presented a message of salvation? Well, I think that goes all the way back to a most surprising source, and that would be the, the slave girl who was freed from Paul. It says in verse 17, she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, it's ironic, Paul gets very annoyed with her, and that's what leads him to cast out the demon, but notice the very words she says. These men proclaim to you the way of of salvation. Next time salvation is talked about in Acts 16, the jailer is saying, can you show me the way of salvation? Now, it might be stretching things a little bit, but I almost want to suggest to you that that is exactly what Luke wants you to see. Notice the effective sharpness of the Word of God. It can come out of the mouth of a demon-possessed girl and have effective power to prick and provoke the conscience. And that is what leads him to be saved. And not only him, but his whole entire household. And notice also how Paul describes Lydia, that worker of purple, in verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Notice this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Why is the word of God effective? Because it's God's truth, but it also 
has God's power opening our heart. And once again, let me just emphasize, chapter 19, verse 20, the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily. This is... This is the, the effectiveness and the sharpness of the Word of God that God can use the, the witnessing efforts of a demon-possessed woman to spread truth about the gospel. It's not the complete message, but it's used to powerfully save this man and, I would even suggest, many of the prisoners. Why did the prisoners stay around? Well, here's another suggestion for you, because they want to hear about this way of salvation, too. The Word of God is incredible in its, in its power and its effectiveness and its authority. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, I thank you very much for this morning and and this um, overview of such powerful chapters. I pray that you would use this to encourage our hearts in the Word of God. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, real quick. We've got one or two minutes. Really hot all of a sudden. Are you hot? Yes. Yeah. No, I tried to turn it down to 72. Uh, any questions from Acts uh, 15 through 19? Now would be a great time to ask all of your long questions because you secretly want to stay here for the rest of the day. All right. Any questions? Asking me no questions, I'll tell you no lies. But if you ask me a question... Yeah. Matthew, you always have a question. What is it? I, I was curious about what you just said. Are you saying you're going to lie to us? No, I didn't. I was just, it's a line from a movie I used to watch. I don't know what it was. but Anybody know what that's from? No. I don't know. I do know that the greatest movie that I've ever seen is called The Gospel Blimp. It's on YouTube for free. You can watch it today. It's only 37 minutes long, but it's a 37 minutes. You will thank your luck. Thank Thank me forever for taking from you. So, Gospel Blimp, just go on YouTube, Gospel Blimp. Matthew, you got to watch it today. Okay. It's incredible. It'll change your life. Um, and it, yes, Joel. Okay, what were the assumptions behind Paul's uh, conversation with the Athenians? Um, he said he had lots of assumptions in his message. One of them is that God has spoken to us. Okay. Yeah. What were some of the other ones? The other ones would be the existence of God, the authority of God, uh, uh, that God created all things, and that since God has created you, He also owns you. Notice that's that's the order of His message, right? This God is your creator. In Him you live and move and have your being. And he also owns you and he's going to come and judge you. Um, that would be an assumption that you would only get from the word of God. Um, all throughout the ancient world, there were lots of views about gods. And never was one of those views that there's one God who created everything and he's going to judge me for how I act. Nobody ever seemed to come away with that conclusion. They're always like, well, this God is the God of the sea. This is the God of the mountains. This is the God of the land. But Paul seems to have assumptions that he brings into his message that are rooted in scripture through and through there's one god he is a creator god he is a judging god in him also notice that in him we have our existence our life comes from him that's also a very jewish thought um um, and even in our day that's that's very controversial to even how scientists in our day think about life so that, that would be just some of them that I would see he assumes the truth of scripture and, and once again we, we should use apologetic arguments I use them all the time uh, when I'm witnessing to people 
but I never live in a in a in a, in a world in which the truth of God doesn't exist. Um, I I know this is true because God's word has ultimately told me, and that's why I believe it. It's it's ultimately much more authoritative than any cosmological argument that I can base based on creation. Um, all you will make by making cosmological arguments is agnostics that say, well, there's something out there, but I don't I don't know who it is because I don't have all knowledge. But, but Paul can speak about the person of God, and that's because he believes in the Word of God. Um, good question. Any other questions?